you're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. It's lovely to have your company as we join our reporters exploring regional and remote parts of Australia. Today we're heading to a historic timber pub in country Queensland, where we'll meet a grazier-turned-publican who's restored the grand old pub that's the pride of its local town. And he's managed to keep it free of pokies. We'll check in on the strawberry harvest at a Tasmanian farm where it's not humans but robots hard at work picking, weighing and packing the ripe red berries. And we'll visit an unlikely sanctuary for native bees on top of a concrete multi-level car park in a regional city. The team behind this urban garden plot are hoping to inspire others to embrace biodiversity in their own backyards. We're basically showcasing what you can do with any space. You can put it anywhere because these garden beds are raised, the, the plants have plenty of soil and as long as the bees have got plenty of food around they'll survive and so it's we're really showcasing that the urban environment shouldn't restrict native vegetation, it should be integrated with it and if we can put it on a car park you can put it in your backyard or in your front yard or on the public streets. We'll meet those visionaries who are pursuing their bold plan for an oasis for bees far from farmland that's coming up. First today, we're headed to northern Tasmania, where reporter Rick Eaves met a trio of grandmas who are devoting their lives to caring for rescued and orphaned dogs. He bumped into them as they took their pups for a stroll along a riverside walkway in Devonport. There goes Roller Girl. Quick head count here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Should be nine. nine. (laughs) I think we've lost any on the way. There should be nine amazingly well-behaved little doggies here. There's two that feel quite threatened when other dogs come. They're rescue dogs. You don't know the background. I'm Diane Jordan. Anna Sputtery. I'm Christina Darkovitz. We've got three prams stacked full of dogs and a few more on the ground. <laughs> well, at the doggy park we have 10, sometimes 11, don't we? Yes. They're all rehomed and very much loved. I walked past you, saw three ladies pushing prams, thinking, oh, isn't that nice? Getting together to take the kids out and a couple of dogs. And then I looked more closely and thought, prams are full of dogs. <laughs> There's six dogs in the prams. Made me do a, a quick come back and chat to you. How did this all start happening? Christina and Diane have been friends for years. I met the girls at Lutron. Trobe Dog Park about 18 months ago and then we decided to walk along here. Archie, this little boy, uh, he's got leg trouble. There's some with arthritis, some with heart problems, so they go for a ride in the pram. Charlie, he's on a diet. He was in a wheelchair and I got a phone call. He was originally from a puppy farm and instead of taking one day for him to sit on my knee, it took four years and he's still very timid. You can see it in his eyes. Yes. And they were so sad. What a beautiful dog. He is. Charlie's angels. I mean, there were three of them, there's three of you. (laughs) That's what Christina said this morning. That's what Christina said? (laughs) Christine, when I first met her, she had eight rescue dogs. Oh, Christine, the quiet one, the one who said, I might not say much. <laughs> that Christine. Yeah. <laughs> Christine, how many dogs do you have at home? Six. So I had eight. People just ring and say, can you take a dog? And the word no wants to come out, but yes comes out instead. <laughs> Do you remember your first dog? Yes, Sammy, when I was about nine, took a terrier. It goes back that far? Oh, not with a whole heap of dogs. Mum wouldn't let me. I'd, I'd bring stray animals home, and when I got home from school, they were gone. And then I married a man who loves dogs. Question came in on the first date, did it? Just slipped it in. What do you think of dogs? 
<laughs> me love my dog. Love yeah. me, love my dog. How many dogs do you have at home? One. One? <laughs> So you're that clever person who loves dogs but knows how to get lots of dogs around you without having to having look after them all, all the time. Don't have to take them home and feed them. How come they are all so beautifully quiet and well behaved? Little doggies. I would have thought there'd be a couple more of them, you know, experiencing some trouble because of their past. I think it's the love they receive. And surprisingly, they all get on. Once in a while, we get a roast chicken and go back to Christina's oh. place <laughs> and we break it up and they all sit round in a circle and wait their turn. Little Benny here, he came from a town up in North Queensland. He was found wandering the streets oh, really? at six months old. And he's found his way to Tasmania now after going through four shelters. Christina has to have a kennel licence and so she's got to jump through the hoops. But she's willing to do that. Sick dogs old dogs. I, I just say to people don't go and buy a dog for $3,000, go to the pound. Speaking of jumping through hoops, these guys do a little bit of that, don't they? Well, Benny does. <laughs> Latrobe Park, there's an agility yeah. course there. He just took it upon himself one day. We've had a lot of people stop us along the track asking are they up for adoption? We said no. So we came across a couple one day and they were desperate for a little dog. And in the end, Christina's son-in-law found one. He has found his forever home. The first night, he jumped in bed and slept between them. <laughs> My name's Bernice, and this is our little rescue, Rusty. I ran into them, and they had ten dogs between them. I said, oh, can't you spare one? <laughs> and through them, we found Rusty, and he, he was actually had a bad start. He was in a chicken coop, and he'd been a little bit neglected. He's actually turned into a beautiful, beautiful dog. He's a Pomeranian Chihuahua. There's odd, odd bits and pieces. Um, he's a bit frightened of men. Newspaper he's terrified of. Whether he's whacked with it, I don't know. And even with his food, he'll take a piece of food and run into his bed and, and eat it and then run out and get another piece. That's a very careful way of doing it. It's a very careful way of doing it. I find food everywhere now. <laughs> he deserves a home like this. We're, we're very much in love with him. We're walking along here and you might see some grumpy people and suddenly you see the smile on their face. Yeah, dog. Here oh. comes. Yes. <laughs> could be interesting. Battle stations, ladies. Well organised, I have to say. <laughs> no alpha dog here? Gizmo. No, except on Gizmo. Little Smiling as that. The little one down the bottom yeah. with the head out the bottom of the prey. Yes. <laughs> that one. He bites. I named him the Smiling Assassin because he looks so cute and everybody wants to pat him. Josie, her dad died. We knew one another and it was always an understanding I would take his dog if anything happened to him. Then Gussie Boy, his owner's best friend died on the day of the floods in... 2016? Yes, yeah. and he was looking for a home. You knew who to call? Yes. travel 114 years into the past. A time when roads weren't reliable, rail lines ruled, and the brand new Kilkeven Junction Hotel was the place where locals gathered for commerce, conversation 
and entertainment. Originally it was just a railway hotel and a railway station opposite. It was open for business in 1909. It was shut for a short time. It had owners but no one to run it or lease it. But failing that it's been open since 1909 and it's still the original building. And the piano in its dining room now has someone to play it. A publican who really cares about this character filled beautiful old wooden pub. A lot of these pubs of this era have all been burnt to the ground. There's bugger all pubs left like this in Queensland and I've always loved old pubs. Grazier Jackson McDonald owns what's now known as the Thebine Hotel. An hour and a half drive north from Queensland's Sunshine Coast, it's off the beaten track. <laughs> There's not much to Thebine, population 145 according to the 2021 census. It has a few remaining railway workers' cottages, the occasional house and in pride of place, the pub. It was looking a little unloved until Jackson McDonald stepped in to ensure that future generations will get to enjoy it. This pub gave me something I never expected to get into. But anyway, it happened and... It's been a good thing. He made his money in the cattle industry and owned properties in the area for 20 years before buying the Thebine Hotel. It was for sale for a fair while and um, just decided to buy it and keep it in local hands. Save foreigners having to buy it. That was in 2019. Jackson McDonald's not revealing how much he paid, but says he's invested just as much again into renovating the beautifully crafted building and adding a flash new deck out the front to make the most of the view of the mountains and the trains still rolling by. There's 17 people working here, including myself now, so yeah. It's a pretty big thing for a local community like this. And everyone is local. Everyone lives within 10, 15 minutes of here. So, you know, that's a lot of people that don't have to travel to Gympie or Maribyrnong for work. It's turned out a, a thriving little place. Large chandeliers now grace the ceiling in the hallway and dining room where historic photos line the walls. Visitors feast their eyes on local memorabilia fit for a museum. Just breathing a bit of fresh life back into it, but trying to keep that grand old feel about it, you know. Oh, great old stairs. So these are the originals? Yeah. One of the last jobs the painters are doing is we're sanding that right back to bare timber, so it's going to be a polished timber staircase. So Do you hire these rooms yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yep. so cute. So there's eight rooms upstairs here. Yeah, oh, this room's being used at the moment. Oops, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, Excuse us. But um, out here on the front veranda, it's a pretty good outlook. How nice is that? You look at some of the carpentry work and all your window checks and stuff above the windows and all the French doors upstairs, you would never be able to pay a carpenter to do that today. Some pretty incredible craftsmanship here. Born and bred local Stuart Volmerhausen and his wife Linda couldn't be happier. Great country pub, just need a little bit of a pickup, and it's changed. The people that are travelling through Thebine and calling in, you can stay at the pub overnight at the back and camp and travellers from everywhere, all over the place, turn up for lunch on Saturdays. The pub is just a great, friendly country pub. And what do you enjoy about it most, Linda? Talking to people, people you never get to meet. The other night there was a couple there from Canada. You just get to meet amazing, amazing people. Well, I've been here all my life, but I didn't realise what we're actually sitting on. I think you could travel a long way and not find a little community network like this one now. We've got a, a whole bunch of oldies around this area, like from 70 to 90 year old. They're all back at the pub now. They'll book out the tables Friday night, and it's good to see all those oldies come back that basically haven't been here for years, you know. 
and to see them out and socialise and yeah, it does give you a bit of heart. The only downside, the annual insurance bill. It's by far our biggest expense. Basically there's only two companies in the world that will insure timber pubs in Australia now and Lloyds of London is pretty much the only one that will underwrite pubs so it is a massive expense. So how much does that cost a year? Oh, 60 odd thousand a year. It's a huge, huge expense. And despite this, Jackson McDonald's made his pub a tourism destination without getting his patrons to gamble. For all these big companies taking over these pubs, it's all about getting pokies in there, which to me is not what a pub should be about. There's no pokies here, so we survive solely on food and, and alcohol sales, basically. And country hospitality, which is pretty nice, isn't it? Not having to rely on gambling to make your living. Yeah, true. Yeah. You talk to a lot of operators today and everyone says you, you can't survive without pokies, but we're proof you can. There's no doubt about it, you, you can. He's enjoyed the process so much, he's now bought Tyro's Royal Hotel and the Commercial Hotel in Biggenden. This place will always be the pride of the fleet. It's like my home, really. And uh, no, I do love the place. You'll never see it sold, I can promise you that. <laughs> um, so no, it'll be something that'll be kept in the family for sure. Jackson McDonald, the publican of the Thebine Hotel, he was speaking with Jennifer Nichols. And you can see more on that story, including photos of the pub after extensive renovations on the historic timber building. It's had a real spruce up. Just head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN, and look for a big country under the programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, we'll meet the team creating a home for bees in the heart of a regional city and hear about how robotic harvesters are making light work of picking and packing fresh strawberries. On this Tasmanian berry farm, ripe fruit are being picked without the need for back-breaking manual labour. A robot will will, uh, scan the crop and see if it can find any ripe berries, which is red berries of a certain degree that we have put in our settings. It will then try to find a clear vector so it can pick the berry, so it has to see the stalk clearly, and then it will attempt to pick it. Once it's picked the berry, it will dip it into a box in the middle of of the chassis, which we call the inspection chamber, which has a 360-degree camera, which takes a photo all the way around that it would make a quality assessment and decide whether this is a good quality berry or if this has to be put in the waste bin. And after that it will put it in a punnet in the tray on the edge of the robot. So while it's scanning inside this uh, chamber it will also do an estimation of uh, how heavy is the berry. So it will know what punnet in the tray it will put it on to reach the target punnet weight. It travels on caterpillar tracks and uh, that way it can move in quite difficult terrain and you don't really have to prepare your, your ground for, to accommodate them. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith, and I'm watching the berry harvest on this large farm at Cressy, as robots pick strawberries at a rate of roughly four per minute. The site manager here is Eva Tildecrist, and she is explaining that the robots are working with little need for human help. At the moment we're managing eight robots per person. That's hopefully going to go up to 12 towards the end of the season. How are they powered? Two strong batteries inside them, which uh, will give you a good good amount of uh, 
I think almost up to eight hours of running time and then we will bring them back into a shipping container charging station and charge them overnight. They're all connected to, uh, to a Wi-Fi system but that's more for us to be able to to remotely control them from the operators having a tablet in their head and, and they can have a good overview of how the robots are doing. They know how many berries they picked, they know if it's time to swap the trays out and uh, they can identify any fault coming up. But they're running on a, on a computer inside them. They're not just picking as they run up the road, they're obviously taking loads and loads of images to find where the berry is, but that, those images can also be pro processed to determine the health of your crop and also do yield forecasting so you know how much harvest you expect in the future. They don't pick as fast as your staff here. No. So what's the financial advantage to having these robots? They don't pick as fast as a human but they don't need to pick as fast as a human because they don't need to be paid a minimum wage. <laughs> to put it like that. Um, they're not a replacement for workforce, they're more of a, of a supplement for your capacity on your farm and economically it's a, it's a reliable way of, uh, of harvesting because you will know your cost of harvest because of the constant rate you're harvesting at. And obviously having many machines per operator will also bring the cost down. It's a peace of mind for the growers to have in case you can get the workforce needed. For example last year we when we had COVID, we just could not get enough people on the farm to do the work and we struggled to keep up with the harvest. And obviously robots don't get COVID, they don't roll an ankle, they, uh, they're pretty reliant workers. How often would the robots make a mistake? Pick a berry that's the wrong colour, for example? At the moment we're seeing about one every hundred berries, which is very, very low compared to human pickers. They do probably rather miss a few berries, which is something we're always working on, but they seem to pick a good good quality. It's a work in progress. It's, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's, it's something that gradually is going to be introduced into farming, I believe. Uh, same as uh, 150 years ago, no one would use a tractor or consider using a tractor for farming, and now it's a part of everyday farming life. The rooftop of a multi-level car park in the middle of a city may seem an unlikely home for bees. But a few years ago, bartender Connor Teven had a bold vision to create an oasis for bees in an urban area. It all started when he was working in a gin bar in the New South Wales regional city of Wollongong. It had a big emphasis on native ingredients, and that sparked an interest in Australian native plants and herbs, which then turned into a love for the bees that pollinate them. Fast forward a few years, and Connor's dream has become a reality. Hello, I'm Justin Hunsdale, and I'm headed to check out Connor's urban bee sanctuary. So we're on top of the Wollongong shopping centre. We've set up a bit of a garden, a beautiful space donated by the mall. We've got a few garden beds, there's more to come, a few plants, and most importantly we've got a couple of Tetragonula carbonaria beehives. So they're the native bees to this area that also produce honey or sugar bag. This seems like an odd place to set up a bee sanctuary. It's a car park, essentially, open to the elements and quite hot, I assume, when the sun's out. What, what's it like to, to set up a bee area in a car park? Is that a, does that present a whole lot of different challenges for you? 
Yeah, you're right about the heat. That was definitely a challenge for us, but we're finding ways to help the bees out. So having well-established plants to actually offer some shade, give the bees a bit of a rest. We want to give them some time to dip in the pool, essentially. Uh, bees like a little bit of water, so something that's going to help them cool down. But bees are very resourceful. If they need something to cool down, they're happy to grab a bead of sweat off your brow. And that's basically like a bee energy drink. I'm a bartender by trade, and an opportunity came about thanks to Beam Suntory and their program, The Blend, for a $5,000 grant. I painstakingly worked on that grant application, and it paid off. I got the entire money, and that helped pay for the bees and uh, insurances and a lot of the less fun stuff. We've also managed to pay for the space through donations. We set up a fundraiser at My Old Bar, Burts and Deaths, and just the goodwill of others. And that really goes to show that it's not just a name, we are the B team. Connor has recruited helpers to his B team, like Jacob Williams. Our intent was to get some garden beds established where their hives are, but uh, because we're in the CBD, there's there's quite a varied uh, number of vegetation. Uh, so we've got the church over over to the north of us, and then we've also got the mall directly south, which has got some good flower beds and planter beds. Ultimately, the, the whole goal of, of this project also is just to boost the biodiversity of the CBD, add some more native plants and some native insects that are desperately needed in, in the Wollongong CBD. Native bees might be something people don't know too much about. Tell us about them and how they compare to the, the European bees. These bees are pretty special. They're stingless and they're also really small. They're pretty unique and a European bee can, can yield a lot more honey but uh, this species is the only species that actually creates a, a spiral comb so unlike on a frame and then the sugar bag it's probably about a kilo in a year it's probably the maximum that you're going to get so it's they don't produce much but by gosh that honey tastes good (laughs) and how important are they for pollination though as well oh yeah extremely important for for pollination because they're so small they can get into a lot of the native plants a lot better than a european bee can that also means that those plants will fruit more and flower more. It encourages huge amounts of biodiversity within within an area. And what do you see the end goal being here? I mean, we've got three beds set up. There's two hives. It's still a car park. <laughs> What's your vision for this place? I'm an Indigenous person, and uh, one of the things that I that I care deeply about is is teaching people to care for country. And so, a space like this is perfect for people to come up and and walk around and experience and see what a native garden can do and what native bees are capable of. It's all about education and adding to the biodiversity of the region. So we want to provide a space that people can sort of learn about native plants and say, oh, well, actually, I like that plant. It's probably going to do better than some European one that I've got in my garden. So if we can start educating the public about the importance of natives, that would be the goal. And, Connor, there's a fence up here as well, so the bees are a little protected from people. But when it is a bit more established, will this be something that people can just come and access? It's most definitely will be a wonderful place to come and relax. You can learn a little bit or you can just take your lunch. We'll have some tables and chairs and whatnot. It's definitely a welcoming space for people to come, learn, relax enjoy one of the things i love about it is that both of you guys have jobs outside of this this is not a a commercial venture at all it's basically just your donation to society isn't it we do get a sense of doing something great for the community which is wonderful but of course we've got other jobs that pay our rent the payment is is our contribution back to society and back to the environment because everyone has to pay their debt to the land that we live on and these bees were a long time coming too weren't they it's been about two years now since i ordered them but now is 
kind of the worst time in history to be a bee. The bee population has been in decline since the end of World War II, but now in particular, with colony collapse disorder, terrible weather, we've almost missed a few summers here where bees need the, that time to go out, forage food, um, expand their hives, but most recently the terrible varroa mite which has been going around but we're thankful that we at the moment have a safe space for some bees they finally arrived <laughs> they are varroa mite free and <laughs> they're going to have enough food to last them jacob is it more uh, about showing what's what can be done with a space like this it's almost a bit of a statement isn't it to take something that seems so far from agriculture which is a concrete car park yeah, yeah. and turning it into a little urban farm oh yes of course so this space, yeah, who would have thought a car park into a bee farm or a, bee, a native garden? So we're, we're basically showcasing what you can do with any space. You can put it in, you could even put it in right on the beach. You could put it anywhere because these, these garden beds are raised, the, the plants have plenty of soil, and as long as the bees have got plenty of food around, they'll survive. And so it's, we're really showcasing that the urban environment shouldn't restrict native vegetation. It should be integrated with it. And if we can put it on a car park, you can put it in your backyard or in your front yard or on the public streets. Jacob Williams from the Bee Team Wollongong, who was speaking to Justin Huntsdale at the Urban Bee Sanctuary he's helped to establish on top of a multi-level car park in the regional city. And that's the show for today. For more on all of the stories you've heard, check out the Big Country program page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash rn. I'm Clint Jasper, and I'll talk to you next week. CRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.